BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. This episode, number 276, is our research review for February 2024, and we're reviewing three new interesting papers. First one is on its exercise in the hospital beneficial. The second one is on caffeine and CrossFit. And the third one, what's better for size and strength, the hip thrust or the squat? So grab your beverage of choice and strap in. It's time to talk some research. But... I'm joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America. It's been a minute. Well, not if you've been listening to the Q&As, but it's been a minute since we recorded a podcast separately. It's Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey. Uh, yeah, it has been a little bit. Been doing a lot of things. Been away for a little bit, um, but um, glad to be back. And uh, I think I'll have some interesting things to talk about uh, in the near future with respect to some some new approaches to my training that I've been taking um, in lieu of some... some uh, changing life circumstances. So I know that people love when we talk about they, training and programming. They love and training like talk. That, so. They love training talk. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll be putting together something on that soon. It's uh, you know, it's funny. I've been getting a lot of resumes for the second most handsome doctor in North America spot. People are like, where's uh -huh. Austin? So they're yeah. like, I'm just putting my, my, you know, resume in <laughs> and uh, you know, fortunately you're still again, second most handsome. So, but we'll, you know, we'll see. I keep getting inundated. We might have to <laughs> I'm curious what additional criteria there are, aside from handsomeness, do you incorporate things like, uh, I don't know, board scores or uh, 1RM benches or something like that? Uh, no, no. Honestly, what I do is I take, they have to submit a photo, I send it right to an AI sort of symmetry, like analyzer, and then I'm like, oh, well, not golden, gold, not golden ratio, you're hired. The golden ratio, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's not as handsome, so uh, yeah. All right, uh, let's get right into the first paper, because uh, I think 
I, I suspect you'll have a lot to say about this. I'm, I'm actually just curious on your opinion. So the first paper is titled Optimal Dose and Type of Physical Activity to Improve Functional Capacity and Minimize Adverse Events in Acutely Hospitalized Older Adults. Now, this is a systematic review and uh, network meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. It was published by Gallardo Gomez and a research group from all over the world. Um, this was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, October 2023. All right, so just some background of this. Most adults are sedentary, even when they're not hospitalized, just in the community. Uh, I think, you know, it's funny if you go to like CDC fast stats or the WHO and their kind of uh, reports on this, they're like, oh yeah, half of the world meets the current aerobic activity guidelines, which is absolutely not true. Because we know this when we strap, we strap accelerometers to people and just like follow around their activity levels, even when they report that they're meeting the current aerobic physical activity guidelines, less than 10% even come close. And that's when you're being very liberal with like what counts as exercise, like any movement, which I don't feel is the case. And then if you add on resistance training as part of the guidelines, it gets even smaller than that. I would suspect, Austin, you can comment on this. I would suspect less than maybe 2% of the world's population actually meets those minimum guidelines, like two to 5%, maybe at like the high end. What do you think about that? Combination aerobic and, and RT. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, it, it's difficult for us to even conceptualize like all of the world's population in terms of the totally. sheer numbers and and how many of them even have access to like, you know, if you were to try to engage in guideline directed resistance exercise, for example, what proportion of the world even have access to the equipment or whatever necessary to do that, unless you're going to incorporate like, you know, body weight calisthenic stuff, which is, you know, challenging to, to progress uh, in, in training. So, yeah, I mean, I think that if you were to hypothesize sub 10% or something like that, then that would not yeah. be a, you know, that would not be an outlandish guess to me. <laughs> yeah. Last year we did a research review, on uh, a newer article that sort of like tried to d delve into that topic and they were reporting that 17% of people were, and again, but this is all self-report report, reported stuff. And I'm like, yeah. well, 17% seems more accurate than like 40% or 50%, but right. I suspect it's even lower than that. Yeah, you could do the same thing for like self-reported, you know, energy intake from from diet or self, you know, self-reported, you know, fruit and vegetable intake or something like that. And then just uh, or self-reported alcohol intake. And like, you know, there'd be a significant adjustment factor for all of those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah. So that's where we're starting at. Most uh, adults are insufficiently active even when they're outside of the hospital. But when they're in the hospital, that gets even worse. Uh, so uh, the current statistic is that. Those who can walk independently while they're admitted only spend about 45 minutes per day out of bed. And that doesn't mean that they're active out of bed. It just means that they're not actually in bed. Uh, and so people are coming into the hospital with relatively low levels of fitness at baseline before they got sick. Then they get sick, so their fitness is even further compromised. Then they're in the hospital, and they can get what's called post-hospital syndrome due to further deconditioning. Now, post-hospital syndrome uh, is this critical 30-day period post being discharged from the hospital. And there's an increased risk of not only readmission to the hospital, but also disease, death, and disability. That's attributed to the stress that the patient actually experiences while in the hospital due to deconditioning. That's on top of the lingering effects from the illness that actually caused the hospitalization in the first place. So again, you have low physiological reserves coming in because the person's not that fit. They lose fitness, not only from the illness, but also being deconditioned in the hospital. And that all sort of uh, culminates once they're discharged, they just, uh, uh, you know, are kind of more vulnerable to, to uh, not only other disease, but worsening of their existing disease and uh, other sorts of conditions. Uh, so not only, you know, when people ask us like, oh, is exercise beneficial for health? You know, the obvious answer is yes, but it's not necessarily that it reduces the risk of like an infectious disease, for example, but it does reduce the risk of dying from that infectious disease because your physiological reserve is much higher. And if you have to deal with a, you know, big disease stress, you're better conditioned 
to deal with that. Um, so there are actually some existing recommendations on this. These 2020 recommenda recommendations for older adults, physical and sedentary behavior during hospitalization for acute medical illness. They basically uh, recommend uh, that hospitalized patients who can be active, be as active as their abilities and condition allows. And this was published in 2020. I, uh, on the date on that was like right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So I'd be very interested to see like <laughs> what the uptake of these were and actually like how, how widely read these were because the COVID, you know, publication, uh, there was just so many of them that I, I suspect that this publication did not get uh, widely read. Uh, Austin, what sort of like physical activity sort of orders or, or, or sort of, um, you know, recommendations are you making for your patients? Because you have to put in a series of orders uh, for the patients that you're admitting or taking care of. Do you have any like specific physical activity uh, sort of uh, orders that you're putting in? Yeah, it's going to be pretty variable based on the the patient um, being admitted, their condition, what they're being admitted for, what they may or may not be able to do. But I think before I touch on that, I mean, I think that to our general listenership who are generally pretty active people interested in fitness and, and training and things like that, most of them are not going to be the kind of folks who spend any significant amount of time in the hospital or near a hospital unless it's for a loved one or something like that. And most people really have no idea what it's like to be in the hospital, to be admitted, how miserable of an experience it can be for a lot of folks who have significant diseases or significant acute illnesses. And before we even touch on physical activity or anything like that, there's so much um, practical considerations, logistical considerations, reasons or, or barriers to participating in physical activity in the hospital. Like you might think, oh, I'm admitted for pneumonia, but I can get out of bed and do a bunch of air squats and take some laps and, uh, and, and, you know, do push-ups in my room or something like that without realizing that a lot of, you know, a, a pretty significant proportion of the patients being admitted to the hospital, as you said, are historically pretty sedentary. The most, most of them have some sort of chronic illness that already leaves them not in the best of shape. That's what predisposed them to get the illness that led them to be hospitalized in the first place. And then beyond that, once they're in the hospital, depending on their condition, there are all sorts of barriers or limiters or factors that can influence somebody's ability to engage in activity, their motivation to participate in activity, their energy that they have to even do this stuff. So just to give a few examples, many people get hooked up to various monitoring devices when they get admitted to the hospital. For example, like wires that get put on their chest to monitor their heart activity um, or, or uh, blood pressure cuffs to monitor their blood pressure around the clock, things like that. Those need to be dealt with if somebody is going to be stood up out of bed and walked around a unit, for example. Many people might have a urinary catheter placed attached to a bag that's hung off the side of the bed that might need to be handled to be attached to them or hung off of their walker if they're going to be walked around the unit. A lot of folks, because they're frail, they are deemed a quote-unquote fall risk. And so because falls in the hospital are also pretty dangerous, um, kind of the, the culture of safety in the hospital has swung so hard to where a lot of these folks get put on bed alarms. So if they are to get out of bed, an alarm is, goes off and a nurse rushes in and tells you to get back in bed. So they're effect, even if they wanted to get out of bed without assistance, they're not able to because of their risk for falls. Um, Beyond that kind of physical barriers and limitations or challenges, in addition to like IV lines that are being hung and IV poles that they need to walk, you know, carry around with them or oxygen tanks that need to be moved around with them. The other aspect is like sleep and how that can impact people's interest, motivation, energy to do this. And in hospital units, a lot of times you're hooked up to these monitors that go off and start beeping alarms at all hours. Their IV pump might go off and beep alarms at all hours. Their blood pressure cuff might be cycling, you know, every two hours or every four hours, even when it doesn't need to be going off that often and waking them up when it's squeezing their arm really tight in the middle of the night. 
They might have squeezers on their legs to prevent blood clots that are going off every few minutes, keeping them awake <laughs> longer than they should. Uh, medication orders might be not ordered in a way that is conducive to patient sleep. So for example, if you order a medicine that's to be given just like every eight hours, then maybe the eighth hour might fall at three in the morning and somebody needs to come in and wake them up to give them medicines. Routinely blood tests are done at like four or five in the morning so that the, order, the results of them are back for the day team of doctors so that for our convenience when we get in in the morning, so people are getting woken up then. So, you know, you can imagine even if you're the most fitness oriented person, hardcore, love to train, you're getting woken up hourly <laughs> for silly reasons overnight a lot of the time. Sometimes it's absolutely necessary if you're in an intensive care unit that you get around the clock, you know, monitoring every hour or something like that. But, you know, if you're getting woken up at all hours like that, you're probably don't have a great appetite while you're sick. You're getting fed food that is probably not super appetizing or not your preferred types of foods. You have all these physical barriers and limitations, lines and tubes and devices and alarms going off. You have a bed alarm that's preventing you from getting up out of bed. Like, how are you actually supposed to do this, right? Um, to, it, it's terrible. It, it's completely unsurprising that people in this situation are in bed as much as they are in bed or in a chair and are only spending 45 minutes out of bed a day. And again, when you said out of bed a day, probably a significant portion of that 45 minutes that's spent out of bed is sitting up in a chair and <laughs> not necessarily walking around the unit. So, you know, that's like the preface of like, what is even the logistical ability for us to do this? It's one of the first things I do when I'm seeing, you know, when I'm taking over a team or something in the, in the hospital is I look at all their orders and who can I get off of all these monitors? Who can I give them peace and quiet at night and not check their vital signs all night? Who can I skip labs on in the morning to give them some sleep and rest? And when I see them every day, I ask them, hey, did you get out of bed yesterday? And they say, no, how come? And then what do you think we can do to get you out of bed today? And sometimes I'm literally negotiating to get people out of bed to sit up in a chair so that they can like, their trunk muscles can have some activity <laughs> right. sitting up. But if I can get them up and walking, then that's even better. It's funny, when I was interviewing for residency positions, I went to a, uh, a facility in Southern California and. Uh, I was just asking them about, you know, hey, if I, if I come here, like, what's the first week look like? Is it like an orientation? I'm just curious, you know, uh, or I think they were telling us, I don't know if I asked this specific question, but they were like, oh yeah, your very first day. Well, you go to the hospital, you spend a night in the hospital and you get your labs drawn and everything else. And you just, get to, just feel, to, it, just, you get to yeah. feel it. I go, interesting, but I'm out. <laughs> zero <laughs> percent interested in, uh, yeah. yeah, like I understand what they did because you're exactly right. You know, the, the, the being in a hospital is uh, not, not a great uh, place for sleep, nutrition, and certainly for activity. So there's, a, as you mentioned, a huge number of barriers. I guess, uh, you know, having prefaced it with all that, if you put like, you order for a physical therapy to come in and not only assess like their ability to like get out of bed, transfer and, and move about the unit. Um, so after that assessment, like what do you put in a, a particular set of physical, uh, like orders for physical activity? And if so, what is like the completion rate? Do you have any sort of estimate about that? Yeah. So the, the first thing I'll try to do is if I can make a determination that a patient is like totally safe to get up and move about the cabin uh, at will, then I will tell them that and I'll set goals mutually with the patient of like, hey, let's do you think we could get you up and take a take a couple laps around the unit after every meal today or something? I try to negotiate some activity directly with the patient, assuming that they're safe and able to do that, meaning that they're not going to be restricted to bed on a bed alarm or something like that. Um, or they have like an unstable fracture that they can't walk on because of their, you know, hip or something like that. If I cannot tell that for certain, then that's where a physical therapy consultation can be helpful. And usually physical therapists come in and they can help to assess the patient's current state and their safety for discharge ultimately, wherever they're going to end up going. And they can help us determine, does this patient uh, need to go to a rehabilitation facility? Can they go to a some kind of a nursing home because they can't take care of themselves? Are they safe to go home? Can they do outpatient physical therapy? And then while they're in the hospital, they might be able to work with them 
on a semi-regular basis. Usually, um, ideally, that's like once a day. Oftentimes, that uh, does not include weekends, except for like ultra high-risk patients, so patients with hip fractures, post-operative, uh, you know, orthopedic situations, post-stroke. They can sometimes even get rehab on weekends. But run-of-the-mill medical patients, it's like if they can work with them once a day for a bit, um, then that's then that's often as much as I'm able to get. And and again, the type of activity is usually relatively conservative. Uh, it, there's plenty of data on you know patients not being pushed terribly hard in the hospital, and I don't always fault physical therapists <laughs> for this. Sometimes I think patients could be pushed harder than they do. Sometimes the patients themselves are like, they might be having a lot of pain uh, and reluctant to engage or push into activity. They might be very tired, as I said, understandably so after everything they've been through, not terribly motivated. They might, you know, not, they might actually be actively dying or something like that, in which case physical therapy is probably not the right move for, for that patient. Aside from those things, if I'm putting in physical activity, quote unquote, orders, sometimes it might say like, we need to walk this patient around the unit, you know, three times a day or something like that. The uptake on that is uh, not super high. And that's typically because those orders are going to the nursing staff. And depending on the floor of a hospital you're on, the nurses might have, you know, anywhere from in an intensive care setting, one patient, two patients, upwards of, you know, six patients or more on a regular medical floor. And for them to be able to keep up with all of the needs of all of their patients and to take a patient for a walk, um, then that's uh, uh, ultimately pretty burdensome on them. And so sometimes um, when I think it is like so critically important, then, um, you know, sometimes myself or a member of my team, one of my residents, or I might have a, a handy medical student around who's, who's able to go and uh, help the patient get up for a walk. But again, even then they might be like, oh, I can't get this patient up because they're on a bed alarm. They're hooked up to an IV. They have all these monitors on them. I really need the nurse to help me get them unhooked. And the nurse is busy. And so again, stuff's super complicated. So I think that's the spectrum of like, sometimes the patient's safe. And, and when I see a patient just like up and independently walking around the unit, taking laps, I'm very pleased with that. But I'm also like, why do you need to be here? Why am I not? Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Can I send you? Because <laughs> you, you look too good to be here if you're able to do that. Um, sometimes they, they, they do, of course. And then uh, the other end is when they're, you know, not even strong enough to stand up on their own. And physical therapists might need to do some like exercises in bed or sitting up at the edge of the bed if the patient's even able to sit themselves up. And then in between is where, you know, a member of the healthcare team can help get them up and walk them around. And But even then, that's a small fraction of the 24 hours that they're spending in the in the hospital each day. So very, very, very challenging. And I think uh, uh, something that a lot of folks who do not uh, spend much time in hospitals, it's difficult to have a lot of insight into this. So hopefully that provided some some clarification. Yeah. Yeah. With all that out of the way, uh, the purpose of this particular paper was to figure out what type of physical activity intervention is the most useful as well as proper dosing. So it's like, okay, I think everyone agrees exercise is probably going to be beneficial for those who can exercise in the hospital, but like what type and then how much is needed to maybe avoid this post-hospitalization syndrome. Um, they also wanted to characterize information about risk of actually exercising in the hospital. Like, wait, were there a bunch of falls or other negative outcomes? Because not only do people, that's probably the number one uh, like barrier to clinicians recommending exercise is like, well, what if they fall? Like I can't, yeah. have, can't have that. And then other maybe uh, um, externalities that, that you wouldn't otherwise predict. So this study was a meta-analysis, 19 studies, just under 3,800 patients, uh, over half were female. The median age was 78, the range of 55 to 87 years old. They were admitted to either to general wards or the ICU, the intensive care unit. So 20, 21% were in the ICU and 79% were on wards. Uh, and they also uh, eliminated any data from orthopedic patients, folks having surgery, stroke patients, no fractures. Otherwise, would like basically say, well, you can't 
you know, move because you've got a, a acute injury and also no uh, patients that were admitted for long-term conditions. Um, so all of these were randomized control trials with the control group re receiving usual care uh, versus the sort of exercise intervention. The length of stay on average was seven days in the hospital, a follow-up time of just over uh, 68, uh, 68 days. Intervention types, there were three major ones. One was just range of motion. Uh, so assuming they're just ranging the patient through different, uh, uh, through all the joints, for, you know, move your shoulders around, move your elbows around, your wrists around, et cetera. Uh, four studies were on ambulation, so just walking around the unit. And then 13 studies were what they called multi-component interventions, which one, just stupid term, just dumb term, because it doesn't tell you what it is. And further in this particular paper, they don't actually describe what is part of a multi-component intervention and what sort of variance there actually is. So that made me do some extra legwork. I had to go pull uh, about nine different papers just to see like, you know, what was the sort of range of different components in these multi-component interventions and like, what were they doing? So in general, most of them com uh, included elements of the other sort of uh, interventions. So there was some range of motion stuff as like a warm up. There was some ambulation, some walking for quote unquote cardio. Uh, in addition, most of them had some sort of resistance training, whether it was manual resistance training. So like pushing against, uh, you know, uh, physical therapist hands or something like that, uh, or they were using a TheraBand. Um, uh, you know, either anchor to the bed or the uh, physical therapist was holding the TheraBand and uh, some balance training, but that was not well characterized either. So, and in, I guess if you were going to call that something, multi-component intervention makes sense, even though I don't like it and it made me do extra work. Uh, as far as the dosing, they used MET minutes, metabolic minutes, metabolic equivalent minutes to sort of calculate the or characterize the dose. And you might remember those from all the discussions we've had on the physical activity guidelines, which recommends 500 to 1,000 met minutes of conditioning exercise per week. So a met metabolic equivalent is uh, analogous to the amount of energy used. That's what they sort of use in the research setting, where one metabolic equivalent is one calorie per kilogram body weight per hour. Um, and this scales sort of uh, up and up and up indefinitely, where a two metabolic equivalent activity would burn two calories per kilogram body weight per hour and so on and so on. There are problems with the accuracy of metabolic equivalents as applied to different people. In fact, the metabolic equivalent and its sort of rate, you know, uh, uh, tie to energy use was from one guy sitting in a chair, literally one dude. And then it's just used in the research setting to uh, ballpark the workload that's actually being performed. So there'd be differences if somebody's you know, doing 500 met minutes per week versus 1,000 met minutes per week and so on and so on. Uh, and then again, just to get your bearings about the sort of how hard these efforts would be or the intensity at which they're being done at, uh, you can use RPE to uh, correlate to METs for conditioning. So light conditioning would be less than three metabolic equivalents, uh, which is usually less than RP3. Moderate to vigorous sort of uh, conditioning, which is three to six METs, is RP3 to six. That's kind of nice. It matches up perfectly. And then uh, vigorous uh, intensity conditioning, which is greater than six METs, uh, is greater than RP6. And again, it keeps going up and up and up. As far as uh, METs and resistance training, that's not really applicable here. You can't really use an RPE to uh, figure out how much energy is being used for resistance training. Uh, in any case, the average dose in this particular study, uh, they spent about 25 minutes for the range of motion group. Um, they averaged 10 sessions per week, which I thought was actually pretty good. That means some people were getting two days of you know, stretching and ranging. Um, and they were averaging between 100 to 200 met minutes per day um, when they were doing this, which is pretty impressive. Uh, for ambulation, 
the average dose was 37 and a half minutes of ambulation, again, 10 sessions per week. So some people were walking more than once a day, pretty good. And they were averaging somewhere between 50 to 200 met minutes per day. So a lot of heterogeneity there because 50 met minutes is, uh, you know, a lot smaller than 200 met minutes per day. Can you, Austin, can you imagine 200 met minutes per day of walking? <laughs> I mean, it's, seriously, that's, you're, you'd be, you'd be over the minimum guidelines. You'd be at, you know, daily. Yeah. Date. <laughs> uh, and then the multi-component intervention on average lasts 30 minutes, eight sessions per week. So not as much, uh, but the uh, met minutes were 50 to 250. So pretty similar volume loads throughout the three different sort of interventions. They use a number of different tests to assess functional capacity in this meta-analysis. So one of them was a six minute walking test where basically you just get a person up and walking. Uh, usually it's, uh, you know, uh, in the hallway and you kind of use a cone to mark out at least 30 meters and they walk back and forth for six minutes and you kind of figure out, well, how long do they walk? Normally it's between 400 to 700 meters. Uh, people can do that. And there's other tests like the Barthel index. This is usually used after a stroke or other sort of musculoskeletal disorders. It's a activity. It's an itemized questionnaire about how much, uh, how many of your activities of daily living can you do without, uh, uh, assistance. So things like going to the bathroom, eating, dressing yourself, et cetera. Gait speed. This one I thought was interesting because I'd actually never looked at the normative data on this. You basically look at like how fast somebody can walk. Uh, you, you put like mark out nine meters in a hallway and then you record the middle distance, assuming they're trying to eliminate like <laughs> acceleration. Once, you hit, once they hit their zero to 60. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so there, it's interesting that in the like normal like speed here for inpatient, is like one mile an hour on average. And then outpatient, it's 1.65. That's like for a normal person. Whereas the normal human walk speed, gait speed is between like two and four miles an hour. So it's like, they're really giving you some latitude here. Like, look, man, for you sure. don't have to be walking yeah. that fast. I <laughs> mean, um, there's a number of other tests that are ultimately not important, but they were using all of these sort of validated tools to assess functional capacity to see like which intervention worked best and, and sort of uh, at what dose. So the results, uh, unsurprisingly, at least it should be to most people, the range of motion training did not alter functional capacity at all. So there was no data showing that those, and now granted there's only two studies on that, but as, as far as what the, the, uh, measured outcomes, there was actually no real improvement in functional capacity with just the range of motion training, which we would not really expect anyway. I suspect if you, I don't know, maybe measured like a, a blood sugar or something, <laughs> like you might be able to see some benefit of moving compared to no moving. But yeah, I wouldn't necessarily expect an improvement of functional capacity just from range of motion exercise while in bed. Uh, with respect to ambulation and the multi-component interventions, there was a decrease in adverse events slightly at discharge, and it kept getting better week by week by week. Falls were the main adverse effect, but there was actually less falls in the people doing the exercise than people not doing the exercise. And again, this effect kind of grew week over week over week, especially after discharge. People were presumably in better shape uh, when they left the hospital. Um, as far as the optimal sort of dosing for ambulation, it seemed to be right around 150-ish met minutes per day, which is about uh, some, you know, like 40-ish minutes of moderate intensity sort of effort. And then the optimal dose for the multi-component intervention was about, was higher at 175 met minutes per day, which would be somewhere in that 45 minutes, again, of moderate intensity sort of effort. There's a minimum and maximum value reported, but honestly, met minute data to me is like, 
I just use it to kind of ballpark like, okay, well, how much more volume were people doing, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, but otherwise, it's like, oh, what is a Met Minute? I'm like, yeah, I don't know either, effectively, because yeah. it's just, it just doesn't really mean much. So my interpretation of this is that, yes, exercise in the hospital can be beneficial for folks who are doing it. Again, not a huge surprise there. I guess the biggest surprise to me is that the amount like of the dose is actually probably much higher than I would have otherwise predicted. I mean, I would have expected, oh, even, you know, 20 minutes, 10 minutes would be beneficial to, to compare to none. But it, it seems like one that's not really known. And it, I suspect it's because if folks are actually getting walked around the unit or getting the sort of exercise intervention, none of it's only lasting 10 minutes. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's just no, we haven't really like scaled down that low. So people are getting at least, you know, 20 or 30 minutes with their PT or whoever else is helping them out. Um, and then this study sort of reports that a minimum effective dose was about 100 met minutes per day, which would be about 30 to 40 minutes of uh, light effort or 20 to 25 minutes of moderate intensity activity, which, okay. Like, I mean, if you were trying to come up with guidelines or Austin, if you were putting in orders on a patient, you could say, you know, at least 20 to 25 minutes of moderate intensity sort of activity. And then to the extent that that would be followed, I guess that would be more beneficial than just like therapeutic exercise as tolerated. Uh, I guess the other interesting thing was that doses higher than 190 met minutes per day, which is like more than 90 minutes a day of light effort or 60 minutes per day of moderate effort activities did not really show clear benefits. And I don't know if that's just like a point of diminishing return. Like just, oh, look, you're getting all that you can get out of what we can, what's available to you in the hospital. You can't just, you know, keep going indefinitely. Um, or if there's some sort of like actual negative effect of doing that much. I don't know. I also suspect that if you could do 90 minutes a day of light effort or 60 minutes per day of moderate effort activity in the hospital, you're already like peak physical condition. And so it's, you know, compared to your, the other people in the hospital. So maybe it just doesn't matter. I don't know. Austin, do you have a, do you have a take on that? Yeah, um, certainly some things that might be a little challenging to to explain uh, in these in these results. But the couple of things that jumped out to me as you talked about this, and the main thing is when I was listening to the the types of patients that were included and the interventions that were done, and thinking about how reflective of is that of my day to day work in the hospital setting. And one of the interesting things, you know, at the outset, I mentioned, for example, some unique considerations when it related to orthopedic patients, hip fractures, post-stroke patients, things like that, that are all super high risk for certain things and get kind of unique attention and activity in, in a lot of settings. So those were excluded from this study. They apparently also excluded patients admitted for long-term conditions, which that jumped out at me as like, well, if I look at my average patient census in the hospital on any given day, most of the people that I'm admitting are either admitted with or for a complication of or something related to an underlying long-term condition. It's relatively uh, a minority of patients who are previously quite healthy, have no problems, and then they end up just needing to get admitted for something, you know, pretty Surprise, doc. I'm in the hospital. Right. And, and even then, when that does happen, those types of patients typically do not need to stay in the hospital for terribly long. The people who get admitted and have very long hospital <laughs> hospitalizations where a physical activity intervention would even have enough time to have a significant impact, those are the patients who are, for the most part, chronically ill have, you know, complications of those chronic illnesses, and then those things that lead them to be admitted. And those are challenging enough to manage that somebody's in the hospital for many, many days, many, many weeks, sometimes even many months. Um, but if but if I have a, a, you know, somebody who is otherwise 
pretty healthy and gets a bad case of pneumonia and gets admitted to the hospital, typically, typically I'm able to discharge them within a day or two. And it's like, well, I don't know that any physical activity intervention that I offer this person in the 24 hours that they're in the hospital, 48 hours they're in the hospital is going to make any difference at all. It's the longer term ones. And those longer term ones are people with long-term conditions. So that exclusion criteria here kind of jumped out to me as something that limits the generalizability of this to my types of uh, typical patients that I'd be yeah. seeing. If you were if you were trying to design a study that was going to show the most like robust efficacy of exercise, it would be like all right, minimum like length of stay, fourteen days. Uh, yeah. No fractures, no surgery, whatever, but yeah. it has to yeah. be some yeah. sort of uh, c condition that puts you in the hospital for at least two weeks, and that you can actually move. Right. So like we're all right. agreeing on that without any other sort of restrictions. Other, yeah. Other than that. Yeah. At the same time, those patients that are in the hospital that long are also the ones who have the most <laughs> inpatient problems and issues and complications that make it the most challenging to engage in this type of activity. And so it would have the most validity like, of that, yeah. you know, of that, that, yeah, it, it would have the most validity at the same time. That's the patient population that is uh, arguably the most challenging to get to do this level of activity sustained day to day because of all the other factors that are going on in any given hospitalization. And so when and it comes to, such, yeah. yeah, the level of activity that is being discussed here, like, you know, seven. 70 minutes a day of light effort, you know, it is not typical that the patients that I have who are actually seeing physical therapists in the hospital, for example, are able to each get 70 minutes a day of direct attention, for example. Um, that's a, that's mm -hmm. a bit of a challenging amount of time for the, you know, the, and, and, and other hospitals, of course, have different levels of staffing and resource availability and things like that. If I could get, you know, a bunch of patients to do that level of activity, I'd be stoked. I'd be thrilled with that. Um, but I think that, you know, ultimately it's like we can use this type of data to, to, to reinforce the idea that, yes, this stuff is good for patients. It's helpful, can, can improve outcomes, particularly when it's done at sufficient doses and intensities. But much like we've talked about in other areas of health, be it behavior change, it's like, yeah, we can do a study that shows you that vegetables are good. Uh, but how do we get people to uptake that and actually eat more? And that's more of a behavioral change thing on an individual level here, you know, when I'm like, okay, we can identify some effective doses of physical activity in the hospitalized setting, that knowledge is cool, but insufficient to actually implement. And so there's a whole, literally a whole field called like implementation science of like, how do you take these kinds of things that we identify in research and put them into real world practice? And I, by no means, I'm an expert in implementation science. I can throw out a bunch of hypotheses of things that might be useful to try to improve this. For example, all of those barriers that I talked about earlier, if we could find a way to minimize nighttime disruptions, to improve staffing ratios, to, you know, do all sorts of other, all sorts of other things during the day, it's like, I could hypothesize that those might help. Is it possible that you do a study and do those things? And it's like, oh, weirdly, none of these things work. That's possible too, because I'm not an expert in that in that field. Uh, but those are just the barriers that I see and experience on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm glad we have this kind of data to reinforce the the idea that, yeah, we need to get people moving. Uh, we need to dose it appropriately, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, home, you know, recreational fitness, all of that, the, the dosage and the intensity matters. But the way that you implement it into practice is going to have unique barriers at each level. When we talk about when we talk about people uptaking exercise in the general population, they have their own set of barriers. When we talk about people in the hospital setting, they have their own set of barriers, and and those kind of need to be uh, uh, worked on more directly if we want to actually make an make an impact here. I think. You ever notice how like uh, most coaches, trainers, not all, not all of them certainly, but many of them are like, I just want to work with athletes. You know, that's like that's like a common common thing. It's a, it's a sexy Nobody's, thing. Sure. Yeah, it is sure. Nobody's like, eh, I just want to work with patients. I imagine a hospital like like putting saying, "Hey, look, we got a budget for exercise specialists. They're going to be trainers. They're going to be whatever whatever certification you think is is useful. Um, I don't know. Maybe a special one needs to actually be done because it's not just a cardiac rehab specialist. You'd actually have to have sure. somebody with knowledge of everything that's going on inside the hospital. 
And then you're just paying them a, a salary to go in and therapeutically exercise patients. Ideally, what you would do is have like a sort of onboarding session or two and then some sort of like follow along video. I mean, this would be my implementation like idea. It, it sure. may not work, you know, but yeah. that's that's the sort of idea. And it's like, man, I, I really would like to see some exercise specialists being hired by the hospital outside of just the, you know, the cardiac unit and rehab unit and stuff like that. So, yeah, it seems plausible to me that hiring those types of staff with that kind of expertise and implementing this stuff, could it result in better enough outcomes that maybe people stay in the hospital for a less amount of time, people end up not needing to go to nursing facilities as often, and ultimately that leads to cost savings and justifies the expense of these specialists and stuff like that. It's all plausible. I think it would need to be tested. I think probably smarter people than me may have uh, looked at this kind of thing, but I don't know that oh, yeah. true either. So yeah, TBD, <laughs> TBD. All right. That's the first paper here on episode 276 of our February 2024 research review. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. 
And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. New paper number two. Oh, Austin, you're going to love this. It's the dose-dependent effect of caffeine supplementation on performance, reaction time, and postural stability in CrossFit, a randomized placebo-controlled crossover trial. This is by Glauca et al. There's a research group out of Poland. I know I just butchered the name. Like, look, if you're listening to this, if you happen to be a barbell medicine listener, and just please send me an audio note about how to say your last name. I, I did. I tried <laughs> to look it up. I, I messed it up. I'm sorry. Uh, in any case, this was published in the January 2024 uh, edition of the Journal of uh, the International Society of Sports Nutrition. And hey, this is, to- this is topical. The CrossFit Open starts in three days. If you didn't listen to the uh, podcast on the injury risk in CrossFit, well, now just I'm, I'm letting you know you can still sign up for the CrossFit Open. We don't have any affiliation with CrossFit. I don't get any money for this. But look, if you do CrossFit and you didn't know the Open was coming, you're welcome for telling you. Austin, are you participating this year? I am not. Uh, my wife is, and I believe I'm being enlisted to assist in filming, or I don't know exactly. I don't recall how the Open works, but uh, I've, been, I've been asked to assist in this. So coming up soon. I, uh, I'll have you know that I am a CrossFit Open veteran. In 2016, I did participate in the CrossFit Open. I, uh, I finished 1,999th in the region. Uh, top 2K, full, baby. <laughs> top 2K, uh, 1,998 positions behind Ben Smith, uh, who I t- trained. You know, so was, I'm getting close. I think <laughs> I will also not be participating this year. I don't think I'll be filming anything. But uh, yeah, so this is basically like testing the effect of caffeine on CrossFit performance. And, you know, we, we can, we'll, we're going to cover some stuff about caffeine and its role in exercise in general. But uh, interestingly, yeah, it just really hasn't been assessed in CrossFit uh, that many times before. Uh, speaking of like pre-workout sort of, you know, ergogenic aids or performance enhancing aids, Austin, what is your pre-workout of choice? Uh, I don't know that I would say I use a pre-workout routinely. I think I'm somewhat of a coffee nerd and I just prefer to make a shot of espresso at home. So yeah. that would be what I would do one before I go out to the garage. <laughs> so you like caffeine? Caffeine yes. would be your, yeah, in, in various in, in, permutations. But in the form of espresso. Like, I would not take a caffeine pill or caffeine powder. No. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't get it. People, it's like they, they, they discover that caffeine is available in different forms and, and vehicles. They're like, oh, you can get caffeine gum or caffeine pill. Or caffeine. I'm like, yeah, but it's gross. And it doesn't necessarily hit your bloodstream any faster, right? Like, a warm beverage, pretty much one of the fastest ways to give yourself caffeine unless you have access to IV caffeine, in which case, like, where'd you get it from? Let me know, because I'm trying to, like... <laughs> from the neonatal <laughs> unit, man. That's... that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the neuro unit, they got it, for sure. Uh, my pre-work, I mean, I use our Perry stuff, because it has caffeine in it. It's yeah. 300 milligrams. That's a pretty good dose for me, and we'll talk more about dosing here as we go along in this paper. So, let's talk about caffeine to start out with. We do have a, a podcast episode. It's like 194 or something. I'll link that in the description below. But about 85% of the U.S. population consumes at least one caffeinated beverage per day. The average intake in the U.S. is 165 milligrams per day. That's about two cups of coffee. Whereas the 90th percentile for caffeine intake is reported to be 380 milligrams per day. It's about four cups of coffee. Austin, do you have any idea like how many cups of coffee you're getting in per day on average? Uh, I would say typically two would be pretty normal. Um, sometimes three if I'm, if I'm not, feeling, not feeling too hot or if I just want one. But yeah, typically two. 
yeah, I think I think I'm I have two in the morning. Well, I have an espresso and a cup of coffee in the morning. And then later on in the afternoon, I have another cup. So it's three cups if you count all that plus sure. Perry. So I think my total caffeine dose is probably closer to like six or 700 milligrams per day. Okay. I know. Yeah. I, you, you guys, you can't see Austin's face at home, but he looked very worried when I said <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 100% kidding. Yeah. Okay. So caffeine's mechanism of action is incredibly complex. It's findings from animal models and isolated tissue studies where they actually look at like what caffeine does at the level of a single muscle fiber. These really haven't been replicated in human studies. In any, in any event, based on existing evidence, we can only say that caffeine tends to do the following things in humans. So one, it tends to increase calcium release in muscle tissue. So that's not only in the heart tissue, but also in the skeletal muscle, also smooth muscle, which results in a number of actions such as increased muscle contraction force potential. Also at the level of the gut, you guys are very familiar with what drinking coffee can do at the level of the gut. Uh, also stimulates this migrating motor complex at the level of the gut, increases the heart's ability to contract hard, inhibits phosphodiesterase enzymes, et cetera, et cetera. I was going to go on this tangent about adenosine receptors because there's been a bunch of uh, gobbledygook. We'll just, that's the best way to put it. It's the most charitable way to say it. People are like, oh, caffeine blocks adenosine receptors, with, you know, which is true. Varying potency at different adenosine receptors because there are different subtypes. And then people will say, because of that, you get an afternoon crash because of this adenosine receptor mediated sort of mechanism. And so if you just, you know, mitigate that by delaying your caffeine dose to later in the day, that's beneficial. And it's like, Hey, interesting hypothesis. Have any evidence for that claim? And that's exactly the response. Crickets. Absolute crickets. Yes, because it's just <laughs> made up. It's just made up by a person who's never seen patients, okay, <laughs> has not done any primary research in caffeine, and is reading from a teleprompter script right into the camera. Okay, we'll, we'll have to, we'll just, I need to settle down. In any case, <laughs> a number of recent systematic reviews and meta-analysis indicate that there is this sort of ergogenic or performance-enhancing dose of caffeine that falls somewhere within the three to nine milligrams per kilogram body weight range. You take that about 30 to 60 minutes before a workout, that seems to be like the performance-enhancing range. However, the optimal dose may differ based on the source of caffeine, the specific exercise being done, uh, and further varies between individuals. Uh, from a practical recommendation standpoint, the average cup of coffee contains about 100 milligrams of caffeine, which would mean that two cups of coffee gives you about 200 milligrams or about three milligrams per kilo body weight for a 70 kilogram individual. This amount is hard to quantify, though, in the specific cup of coffee that the person's drinking. People sometimes say a cup is like this huge bowl of coffee, which would definitely have more caffeine. Also, how you make the coffee can, can, can change the caffeine content. Um, but in any case, Two cups of coffee consumed about an hour before the workout should yield a uh, performance-enhancing benefit for most individuals on the low end, right? Some folks may want more, some folks may want less, but that's kind of the dose we're talking about. And again, individual preferences with respect to caffeine source, sensitivity, exercise, et cetera, should all be taken into consideration to tailor the dose appropriately. So the purpose of this paper was to assess the effect of caffeine supplementation on CrossFit. So what they did is they took 26 CrossFitters, uh, 10 females, 16 males. They all had at least two years of CrossFit experience where they were doing at least four workouts per week. And the test they did was Fight Gone Bad. Austin, have you ever done Fight Gone Bad? Uh, maybe. Can you remind me which one that is? <laughs> so yeah, it's three rounds of five different exercises where you do a one-minute AMRAP. Uh, so that means as many reps as possible. So you do wall ball for a minute, then sumo deadlift high pulls for a minute, box jumps for a minute, push press for a minute, and then you row for max calories for a minute. Then it's a one-minute rest. And you repeat that three times. 
That sounds kind of terrible. Uh, no, I don't believe I've done this particular one. I think I, I would remember if I ever did AMRAP sumo deadlift high pulls, and I have not done such a thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that's that's the workout that they tested, and they and they basically had people do this with either three milligrams per kilo body weight of caffeine, six milligrams per kilogram body weight of caffeine, or nine milligrams per kilogram body weight of caffeine, or a placebo. Uh, and so there was a seven day washout period between each sort of test. So everybody served as their own sort of control. They did effectively fight on bad four times, which sounds well, five times, including the baseline performance. So that Jeez. sounds actually terrible. It's yeah. like every week you're like, I got to do it again. Don't I? <laughs> I, hope I, I hope I get more caffeine just to like make it through this. They also tested the stability, uh, based on a, uh, one leg sort of uh, stability test on what's called a posturography platform. Would Never heard of that. See, would and... love to see the reliability data yeah. on that particular <laughs> test. And they also did a reaction time test um, based on pushing a button in response to a yellow light signal. And they tested blood lactate and pyruvate. Just other things that they tested, I, I suspect, to like see if there was any differences, but less interested in those findings. So the results. Now, Austin, if, I, if you had to predict... Hopefully you didn't read this, but if you had to predict which group did better, what dose of caffeine did better? I would expect the high one. They're all the same. There was no difference, effectively. No statistically significant difference in performance improvements compared to baseline, but all of the groups did get better compared to baseline. So effectively, the average baseline performance was 271 reps across, you just count your total reps, and that increased to around 290 for all the rest of the uh, uh, groups. Interestingly, yeah, the six milligram per kilo dose did the best at 294 reps on average, but compared to placebo, it was 289 reps. So it's like, yeah, yeah that's not relevant at all. It's just like, okay, luck of the draw. The most interesting part about this study, in addition to uh, caffeine not really causing a performance benefit here, was that there was a significant effect of uh, timing of like when the people did the workout, not during the day, but also like like what what exposure they had. So effectively, like if you did FICON bad, everyone did their baseline at the same time. But if the next dose, the next time, like you got three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram body weight, uh, then your performance was not as high compared to the fifth exposure you had, which might've been placebo, in which case the placebo would have been the best for you. Right. So effectively, as people did the workout more and more and more, they got familiarized with it and did yeah. better. Learn, learn, how to pay, learn how to pace it better, whatever the case is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if actually like this crossover study design was the best for teasing this out. You'd really I just agree. want a bigger sample size, you know? Yeah, that within subject control and repeated exposures jumped out as a little little sus uh, <laughs> when you described that to to give us the the the, uh, the answers we were looking for here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there were no significant changes in reaction time or stability, so irrelevant there. The lactate levels did change, so um, after exercise, it was compa uh, compared to placebo, the highest dose of caffeine, nine milligrams per kilo per day, had the highest average uh, lactate at 17.6 millimoles per liter. And uh, I thought you would just like to see that uh, that number. Yeah, that like number is quite high. Um, <laughs> but I'm interpreting lactate levels in the context of sick hospitalized patients. Uh, and so that's, you know, expected for an athlete. The thing I would point out here is that anything that drives glycolysis can increase lactate levels because it's just mm -hmm. pushing more, uh, you know, pushing more through that metabolic pathway. So caffeine itself can drive lactate up a little bit, as can, you know, epinephrine, adrenaline, all that other kind of stuff drives lactate up. So that's not surprising. Yeah, but I just thought that number, I go, wow, that's an impressive amount of lactate. Yes. 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, any patient I ever see with that number, like they're not, they're for sure going to die. But yeah. uh, it's it's fascinating how the same numbers in wildly different contexts can be so different. So, I mean, I've seen, you know, there's there's data on like Olympic level rowers and their lactate levels hitting like somewhere in the you know mid to upper 20s. And I've seen a lactate level, of, I think, like 27 once in a meta in a hospitalized adult who was like in complete anaphylactic shock and passed away very quickly. Um, so just different contexts, but the number, it, it, it's like we've talked about before with like blood pressure, for example, the way you yeah. get there matters, right? So <laughs> when your lactate gets really high, the way you get there matters for sure. Well, that's what I was thinking. So like nobody, I have not heard the this sort of idea like, oh, you can't exercise at a level that gets your lactate up because we know high levels of lactate are dangerous. Like look at all these, the sepsis data that we have with you know nope. patients with super high lactate levels. But people will say, ah, when you exercise, your blood pressure goes up perhaps to dangerous levels. And it's like, yeah. I don't think anybody who is smart is saying that, I hope. <laughs> but. If we find out, look, if you guys have seen that on the internet, let us know. We will do a quack watch on that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so my interpretation of this, is, it, it falls in the under the lens of other data we actually have on CrossFit. So a few other studies have actually investigated caffeine use in CrossFit-type workouts. So one investigated uh, where folks got six milligrams per kilogram body weight of caffeine for a 10-minute AMRAP snatch and double under. There was no benefit. Uh, another study investigated five milligrams of caffeine per kilogram body weight uh, for Cindy. That's uh, was it five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, 15 squats, AMRAP, 20 minutes. No benefit there either. And to me, this kind of summarizes my feelings on caffeine as a potential performance-enhancing drug or ergogenic aid. There are relatively small effect sizes of caffeine for things like aerobic endurance, muscular endurance, peak power. It's a bit larger for maximum strength, but it's not a life-changing sort of effect. It's just a small benefit. And if you really put a gun to my head and ask me, like, what is the performance-enhancing benefit of caffeine for working out? I think it's more motivation in in, in nature, and like alertness adherence. and things like that. Yeah, kind of like create, kind of like the effects of creatine. Honestly, people blow the effects of all these things way out of proportion. It's all quite modest. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, uh, not the same effect type, like like what it does. Yeah. I don't think creatine affects adherence, but it's a small Size. effect. Yeah. yeah, and then caffeine is a different mechanism, but I think it's unrelated to like what's happening at the level of the muscle. I think it's more ha happening like between the ears. It's like, okay, you take a little caffeine. It's part of your habit. It makes you want to go to the gym or improves your sort of energy level to go to the gym and participate or in the or thing. It's part of your ritual. Yeah. Right. There's something to have it. Yeah. Sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. So if I had to pick a dose for folks, I would preferentially have folks start at the lower end, three milligrams per kilo, two cups of coffee, you know, it's 200 milligrams or so. Uh, and for a 70 kilo or 154 pound individual, that would probably be the correct dose to start at. And then you can go up a little bit from there based on your preference. If you're super caffeine sensitive, I wouldn't mess with this stuff. Right. Especially if it's going to mess with your bedtime. Uh, the other thing here, last interesting nugget there was no sort of withdrawal effect that was present based on the placebo group. Like most of these folks are habitual caffeine consumers and uh, you would expect that the placebo group would have done worse. No caffeine and you're a habitual uh, caffeine consumer, no withdrawal effect. So I think there is a, a line of thinking in caffeine related research that, yeah, a lot of the effects you see, particularly when they're large effects, are based on people who are habitual caffeine consumers not getting caffeine anymore when they receive placebo. But they didn't see that here. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think your max squat would be with caffeine versus without caffeine? If you had <laughs> to guess. I mean, I would say less than 5% difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I honestly, yeah. I, I would not predict any difference greater than my like day-to-day -day variation, exactly. whatever that is normally. Yeah. Yep. I just prefer caffeine. It's like living better through chemistry. Let me do this. Okay. Yep. <laughs> 
All right, last paper is titled Hip Thrust and Back Squat Training Elicit Similar Gluteus Muscle Hypertrophy and Transfer Similarly to the Deadlift. Uh, one, great title, because you don't really need to read the paper. You just read the title. So <laughs> kudos to that. But also, like, come on, guys, bury the lead a little bit. Like, what are we supposed to talk about after you, after you use that title? <laughs> so a lead researcher was Plotkin, and this was a research group primarily from Auburn University. This was published in the Frontiers of Exercise Physiology, October 2023. Uh, before we start, Austin, which do you predict will transfer over more to a three rep max deadlift, the hip thrust or the squat? Man, that's an interesting question. I mean, mm -hmm. when I think about them, they, depending on how you execute the movements, they have pretty similar ranges of motion about the hip and gluteal musculature. Mm -hmm. um, the loading potential is probably a bit different due to other factors. The squat is going to provide a bit more stimulus across the back segment. And so to the extent that I'm adding a little bit of stimulus to the back, in addition to what I'm doing at the hips, maybe I could make a case for the squat. Um, I suspect that with a few more minutes of pondering, I could come up with a counter argument to myself or as you probably could off the cuff too. So that's, that's how I'm going to equivocate on that one. Yeah. I mean, I think that the specificity argument, you know, that's all related to the, the said principle, right? That like, you know, the way that you train and the manner in which you train has the, that you're likely to have the largest carryover to a similarly related task. And with respect to strength, it's the same muscle length, movement, velocity, things like that, joint angles, so on and so on. Um, so you would predict, you know, well, the squat maybe is more similar to a deadlift than the hip thrust. You could make that argument as you did, or, but you could say, well, it's really not that different around like hip extension. And right. so like, maybe it's not any different the hip thrust versus, uh, the squat compared to the deadlift. But I do know some people and some factions that would vehemently, vehemently disagree and say, no, the squat by far is way more effective for not only deadlift strength. Uh, but also like glute hypertrophy or whatever. And it's like, yeah. And so what do you base that claim on? And again, it's crickets. It's just nothing. It's just like, well, we like the squat. We're like, well, that's great. You can like the squat just fine. Some people like the hip thrust. That's also fine. Anyway, let's get into the study. So we're talking about exercise selection here, and this is defined as the specific activities or movements performed by the individual and their specifics, such as the range of motion, tempo, movement style, so on. Exercise selection should maximize both adherence to the program and fitness adaptations while minimizing the risk of injury. And adherence is likely improved by self-selected exercise type. An individual specific goal should dictate the training elements included in the program. For example, an individual who wants to compete in powerlifting must train the squat, bench press, and deadlift in order to prepare for competition. But for individuals who do not have specific performance goals, we would advocate for a less specific approach to strength development, therefore improving, in, uh, improving proficiency over a wide range of different movements, rep ranges, and intensities. We recommend uh, picking exercises based on the individual's goals, preferences, resources, and a movement's trainability, which means whether or not a person can perform, load, and progress an exercise. And when selecting an exercise, we want to train all the major muscle groups efficiently. So picking a specific exercise can be difficult as responses to training vary amongst individuals. For example, should a person squat high bar or low bar as their main squat pattern? We know that we want the exercise to load the muscle groups being targeted and train a particular movement pattern, but knowing which variation works best ahead of time is difficult. And there are issues with predicting the response to training that also shows up in the research literature. There are a number of various EMG studies showing different levels of electrical activity in the muscles between different movements, but no actual differences in strength or hypertrophy outcomes. In other words, indirect evidence surrounding mechanisms of training adaptations don't always predict what really happens. In fact, we need direct evidence when comparing exercises. So the purpose of this study is to compare the barbell back squat to the hip thrust to see which one stimulated the most muscle growth in the glutes, 
as well as how each affected strength in the back squat, the hip thrust, and the deadlift. All right, so there's 34 subjects, mostly in their 20s. Two-thirds of them were women. They trained two times a week for nine weeks, and they started at three sets per session of eight to 12 reps to failure of either the hip thrust or the back squat. And then over the nine weeks, they progressed to six sets per session. They were volume matched though, so each group did the same amount of volume. They used an MRI to measure uh, hypertrophy of the glutes, which I thought was good. That's a little bit more accurate than DEXA, particularly in this uh, short setting. And they tested a strength via a three rep max back squat, deadlift, and hip thrust. They also did EMG of the glutes. So that's just uh, measuring electrical activation, um, electrical activity at the level of the muscle. As far as the results, the EMG values were greater at the glutes in the hip thrust compared to the squat at all sites. Okay, big surprise. There are a lot of studies uh, that were showing that. In, you know, and we would predict, again, if I would have asked you, Austin, what's going to have the highest EMG level for the glutes, hip thrust, or the squat, you would probably said hip thrust just based on that, that knowledge. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's been shown somewhat consistently, although um, the caveats here around ranges of motion being normalized and stuff like that is an open question, I think. I don't know that you know or we know enough about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly not standardized. You're like, oh, well, you did the hip thrust deeper than you did the squat, yeah. for example. Yeah. Right. Uh, that being said, hypertrophy, as measured by MRI, was the same. There are relatively small differences that were much smaller than the inter-individual differences in hypertrophy when it comes to the glutes. So hypertrophy differences in nine weeks between the squat and the hip thrust were uh, effectively the same. The squat was much better for quadriceps and adductor growth than the hip thrust, which was predictable just given the way that it loads those muscles and the range of motion by which it moves those muscles through. And the hamstrings didn't really change much in either, suggesting that neither is like a great exercise for hamstrings, hypertrophy, for example. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Testing strength. The squat improved the three rep max squat the most compared to the hip thrust. The hip thrust still improved the squat a little bit. I believe it was just a little under 10 kilos, but the hip thrust, uh, but the squat was 14 kilos better than that. So about 24 kilos uh, improvement in the three RM squat, which is also great over nine weeks. Like a 24 kilo improvement. I would take that. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> the hip thrust improved the three RM hip thrust more than the squat by about a 26 kilo difference. So over 55 pounds greater, uh, the hip thrust was for the three RM than the squat. The squat still did improve the hip thrust, just not as much as the hip thrust. Array specificity. When it came to the deadlift three RM improvement, there was no difference between the hip thrust and the squat. They both improved their deadlift three RM, but there was no real difference between the hip thrust and the squat. Array specificity again. Uh, so my interpretation of this is like one great study design overall, like outcome. They're testing actual outcomes, which I care more about than EMG. Stuff pe people have been making a living off of hyping up and usually parroting <laughs> EMG results. So like, oh, look, this particular, you know, study shows higher EMG levels in the Terry's major when you do this type of pull down. It's like, dude, who cares? Like small differences in EMGs, like aren't really relevant. She needed a, an outcome study because the current data that we actually have on EMG differences pertaining to actual hypertrophy outcomes show effectively no real relationship. If you had a study showing that like one exercise caused an increase in EMG and the other exercise caused no <laughs> EMG activity, like if you were measuring like biceps activity with like a biceps curl versus a leg press and you're like, well, the biceps curl is more effective because the EMG levels, it's like, okay, like I'll buy that, but I didn't need an EMG study to tell me that either. In fact, the author's conclusion was that EMG amplitude's ability to forecast muscle growth across subjects was generally poor and variable. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, 
Also kind of supporting some things that we've been saying for, for a while now, there's a large inter-individual difference between people. So the ranges of hypertrophy and also strength gain were highly variable, which is exactly what you would expect. And, and the final, my final takeaway here is that strength is relatively specific. You would expect, again, a hip thrust to transfer better the, to the hip thrust than a squat, a squat to transfer better to the squat than a hip thrust. And then with the deadlift, you just don't know. And I, again, I think that's like pretty intuitive if you understand like specificity or you even like ha have a modicum of experience with like the <laughs> training. I just don't understand how people could predict differently. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, well, the squat would clearly be better. It's like, how confident do you feel in that position that the squat's going to transfer better to the deadlift than a hip thrust? Because you could, it could be a hypothesis, but I wouldn't feel very confident about it. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before when it comes to ideas around belief change and people coming at uh, beliefs from different epistemologies, <laughs> meaning that if, if one person just thinks that they can start from some sort of perceived first principle and like logic their way to the correct conclusion um, in complex biological systems, <laughs> you're going to have a bad time, but people do that anyway. And then the opposite end of the spectrum is that you know, there's nothing that you can, you know, deduce from such a thing um, or infer from such a thing. And instead, all you, the only way to draw any conclusions is through uh, direct, uh, you know, empirical or observational research, which I think that that's not entirely uh, true either. Um, there is some value in uh, using, you know, say physiologic principles, like I have to do this all the time in practice of there might not be evidence on this thing that I need to do or manage or act upon um, in when medically treating somebody. And so I have to use some sort of, you know, physiologic first principles approach to to come up with something. But as you said, that is not a management plan that I have overwhelming confidence in. I'm saying it's the best I can do right now. And so I think that, you know, adjusting your level of confidence um, based on the uh, strength of evidence that you used to get to your position <laughs> is something that more people should do. And uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So speaking of first principles, when it comes to exercise selection, and my take from a first principles perspective is you'd want to pick an exercise that loads the muscles being targeted in a way that's specific to how you'll be testing them if you're trying to get the max sort of improvement in that test. If there is no specific strength test, I would in general favor longer ranges of motion and movement variability. And then I would use somebody's preferences and trainability to dial in that sort of selection, whether it's high bar versus low bar, sumo versus conventional versus trap bar, like whatever, you know, all of these sort of different movement patterns should be trained. But as far as like what specific variation style you pick, well, I don't have a lot of confidence that one's going to be better than another, unless I know the test, in which case I have more confidence in what should transfer over. Uh, but as far as, you know, how certain I am of that, well, I can only tell you after the fact. Uh, my last, maybe we'll call this a lukewarm take. I think a that the tepid, tepid take. <laughs> a, tep a tepid take, if you will. I think the hip thrust is undertrained by powerlifters and strength athletes in general outside of maybe the track and field like uh, uh uh you know demographic who i think have embraced that that exercise a little bit more but probably overtrained by fitfluencers like i we have at least three hip thrust like machines at our place in addition to like other ways to set up the hip thrust and at any given time in the gym there are you know almost a half dozen of people doing some iteration of the hip thrust but I mysteriously see these people never go to the squat rack. And I'm like, why, why though? Or deadlift in a way that it, with similar enthusiasm to the hip thrust. Like people will do set after set after set after set after set of, you know, all these hip thrusts. And it's like, well, you, you should do like maybe about the same of squatting and deadlifting. 
you know, you don't, you don't have to, again, you free, feel free to like live your own autonomous life as an adult. But if you were trying to sketch out a program and like allocate volume to the hip thrust, to the squat, to the deadlift, they would look pretty equal to me. If like my whole goal was like lower extremity hypertrophy and strength, I would probably do all of those. What do you think about that? Um, I agree that that's a, that's a, a tepid take, um, in my own experience, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do not train the hip thrust, not mainly because of personal preference and that I find it kind of annoying to set up in my own garage gym. I suppose, like you said, if you have a specific dedicated machine that makes it easy to hop on load and do the thing, maybe I'd be inclined to do it. I do programming from time to time, although that honestly is more often in a rehab setting for people with low back type stuff, um, particularly people with low back stuff who tolerate um, extension well, um, then I will have them sometimes do that, sometimes bilateral, sometimes a single leg hip thrust type thing, which is obviously not loaded terribly heavy. Um, and so that's actually where I end up using it more. I've used it for myself in that way too with some some low back stuff, just getting my my uh, low back and hips and, and and that musculature moving in a different way. As far as training it in a dedicated fashion, I think that part of that is informed by my lack of caring towards hypertrophy as a primary outcome and more strength orientation in particular movements that I care about. So I tend to dedicate a bit more resources towards that. Would I be better off if I did it? I don't know. That's a total guess. Um, yeah. And so I think that there's nothing that, you know, I'm, I'm similarly kind of like movement agnostic in this way, unless there's a dedicated test that somebody's training for. Although even when there's a dedicated test, there's some value to movement variation when it relates to, you know, load distribution and, and injury risk management and stuff like that too. So, yeah. Yeah. I actually have been training the hip thrust uh, rather aggressively since we got back from Australia. I, what was happening is like every other week, on the deadlift, my low back would hurt during warmups. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll do the rehab thing. And okay. then the next week when I deadlift, I'd be like, oh, I'm feeling, feeling good. Let's just, you know, release the Kraken. Like if I'm not hurt, like I don't need to modify training. Sure. But, but on top of that is every time I would squat, my low back would not be comfortable. This has been going on now for like, it, it was going on maybe for three weeks before I started, I actually changed my programming, just kind of bit yeah. the bullet. And I was like, yeah. all right, I'm just going to train the hip thrust as my primary deadlift pattern. And I'll still deadlift, but with like tempo and, and other sure. sort of stuff yeah. as I like, yeah. uh, so I worked up to, you know, what is it? 675 for a couple sets of six on the hip thrust. Uh -huh. uh, Thanks. For and, yeah. It does. Like I was not sensitive to that position. It allowed me to train hard and heavy, which I preferred. So I don't know that it's like a uniquely beneficial rehab exercise and that like the movement itself is like, you know, therapeutic. But I think it's proof your back. Yeah. I think it's enough of a distraction though, to let sure. like time do its thing and keep yeah. me active. Yep. And, uh, you know, I went back to deadlifts this past week. I pulled uh, 525 for a 300 tempo set of six, which nice. with no belt. Yeah. Uh, if you were wondering whether heavy tempo deadlifts are fun. You're doing, and to clarify, you're doing tempo eccentric. So you pull it up. Oh, no, on the way up. On the way up. Oh, you're slowing down on the way up and then lowering it fast. Oh, geez. I, I don't think I've ever programmed somebody to do that. <laughs> well, because the point was, I was never, I would never have any pain on the way down. Like I could do an RDL with the world, you know, at least that's the way I felt. Yeah. But pulling it off the ground is where I had sensitivity. So I was like, oh, nice. if I just slow this down. Awful. Like what yeah. a terrible, yeah. terrible yeah. movement to do. But, but no sensitivity. So anyway, I think we've talked enough about hip thrusts. Austin, any, any closing words for the uh, 2020? the February 2024 research review? I don't think so. I think we'll have some more, uh, more tepid takes uh, next month. 
Tepa Takes with Barbell Medicine. All right. Thanks for listening. This has been the 2024 uh, February Research Review, episode 276 on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, so we keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.